Good morning, everyone. So uh, we're continuing our series in Luke. Uh, just hope that this isn't going to collapse. That would be great. Brilliant. Okay. Uh, yeah, we're continuing our series in Luke uh, this morning. This is uh, the last uh, sermon in uh, this leg of the journey uh, before next week when we begin the period of Advent. Uh, but do not fear, we will be resuming our journey with Luke in the new year. Um, I just wanted to say, before we get started, that, um, yeah, I just had a really strong sense as I was preparing this talk that, um, that what I have to say may not be what you need to hear. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive, but what I mean is that I think uh, that what I emphasize as the main points may not be the thing that God wants to say to you, but I think that there is going to be something in these words that God wants to just highlight for you. And I just want you to be attentive to the, the uh, presence and the movement of the Holy Spirit as, as he kind of highlights moments for you. Uh, and, and it may be uh, that what I think is important in this passage um, is not as important as maybe the thing I say accidentally or, or, or almost tangentially that the Lord wants to say to you. So let's just be present to the Holy Spirit as he is present to us uh, this morning. We're going to go straight into our passage and Hannah is going to come and read it. It's in Luke chapter 10. Uh, if you have Bible or Bible device, you can follow on or it'll be up on the screen, but we're starting in verse 17 and reading up to verse 24, Luke chapter 10. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, in your name even the demons submit to us. He said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, Jesus said to them privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Great. Thanks, Hannah. kind of feels like we've, uh, we've opened the wrong book and started reading the Gospel of John, doesn't it, when we uh, get the Father and the Son and the Son and the Father and that sort of thing. But... Um, yeah, no, we are in Luke. I have three main 
sections to what I believe God wants to highlight to us through this passage, but I don't have any helpful, alliterative, one-word names for them. But the three parts are as follows. First of all, I think Jesus reveals a history of heaven. And in that, he illuminates and and contextualizes the current state of spiritual affairs uh, into which uh, he is ministering. Secondly, Jesus gives a slight course correction uh, to the disciples' reaction to what they see and enjoy going on. And third and last, we see Jesus himself rejoicing as he's celebrating uh, seeing the salvation plan that is um, showing signs of actually working. So those are the three sections. First of all, the history of heaven. Secondly, the course correction. And thirdly, uh, Jesus himself rejoicing. But as I say, who knows what the Lord wants to highlight to you this morning. So first of all, uh, in this passage, uh, we're given a glimpse into the state of spiritual affairs, uh, affairs as Jesus has seen them and knows them to be. Jesus gives us these revelations so that we might know that what we see in the difficulty of life on earth is not always all it appears to be. So it's a revelation, or another word uh, for revelation is, anyone? Apocalypse. Apocalypse. If anybody knows me and is playing Jesse Bingo, you can mark your cards now. (laughs) So... Jesus gives this remarkable statement that he saw Satan falling from heaven. And so it just wouldn't be me if I didn't take you down a little uh, walk down Apocalyptic Avenue for for a few minutes. So when Jesus is describing what he witnessed, he's not saying uh, what he is currently standing there looking at. He's He's describing something that he has already witnessed. He's describing something that has taken place, not something that is taking place as they're standing there. And he describes what he's seen, and the knowledge of what he's seen has set up his understanding of the entire spiritual landscape into which he's ministering and into which he's sending his disciples. And what's more, he's describing events um, that he saw before the first Christmas, which confirms his status as fully divine. But there's a, there's a theological conundrum to put in your pipe and smoke. And for, more, for a more in-depth description of what Jesus is describing here, we have to go, believe it or not, to the book of Revelation. And the author there, John of Patmos, Uh, writes in a somewhat confusing way. He doesn't write events in a neat chronological order. So it can get a little bit confusing as to the sequence. And the the jumbled up way that he's writing in does serve other really, really important purposes. But for the sake of kind of chronological, historical clarity, I'm going to mix up the order of a couple of verses here. So I hope, uh, where's my heresy uh, uh, monitor? I hope that you don't judge me too much for doing this. So Please read the passage yourself and see what, see what the Lord highlights to you. But this is, this is how I understand the cosmic history unfolding in Revelation 12. It starts by saying this. A great portent appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. 
She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs in the agony of giving birth. And then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. I'm going to jump now uh, to verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I'm going to jump back now to verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. But then God's, uh, yeah, something else happens. Sweeps it up and God protects him. Um, Now, how much of this Jesus told his disciples, we don't really know. But for us, it, ha- it, helps us, uh, it helps paint a picture of what Jesus is describing as having witnessed. And that picture is much broader than anything we naturally have eyes to see. So it provides us with a spiritual landscape that we wouldn't otherwise have. It's not simply a landscape of flesh and blood, but of principalities and powers that are both holy and renegade. It's into this landscape that the disciples have been operating in the power and authority that Jesus has given them. And they come back absolutely pumped at the results. And Jesus explains to them that this is simply what's happening now, what they're witnessing, is simply the next phase of a spiritual battle that has already had a long, long history. So when he tells them, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. When he says that, he's harking back to a promise God made to the serpent all the way back in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis uh, chapter 3. Verse 15 says, this is God speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. And this whole dynamic of warfare between the offspring of the woman and the serpent is also described in Revelation 12, where the woman who is clothed with the sun and has the moon under her feet is a kind of of composite image of both Eve and Mary. And in uh, verse 5 of the section that we just read, it goes on to say this. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God so that there she can be nourished for 1,260 days. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. 
And uh, by the way, I'm still jumping around here just to give you the chronology. And then the dragon was angry with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And so having failed to defeat the first child of the woman, who is Jesus, by the way, Satan is at work making war against the rest of her children, and that's the disciples, and it's us. Those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. But those disciples and we, even here today, have been given power and authority to strike the head of snakes and scorpions and even demons, who are these renegade angels who were cast down with Satan, and even they will submit to us because we carry that power and authority. So that's the history of heaven that Jesus wants us to understand, because it's a history that describes who Satan is, what has happened to him and his minions, where he is now, and where he stands within the cosmic hierarchy. Now, before we move on to uh, part two, I have a little side note for the nerds. Um, <laughs> this is just to pique the interest of anyone who has a, uh, a, a, any desire to get nerdy about apocalyptic literature. It might just be me, but just indulge me for a second. So this explicit period of time that's mentioned of 1,260 days in which the woman is going to be nourished by God in the wilderness. If you read it literally, it's obviously a, an exact period of time, an exact number of days. But if you read it in the context of the type of literature that it is, it's actually saying the same thing as another phrase that's used in this section, which is time and times and half a time. So basically, a time equals one, and times equals two, which you add to the one, which is three, and then you get half a time, that's three and a half, which has spiritual significance because it's half of seven, because seven is the number of, of completeness. So basically, Jesus is saying, and he's using all kinds of language that he's borrowed from Daniel, he's basically saying that in the cosmic history, where we stand right now is in this latter half, the second half of this period of seven, and when we get to the end of it, we will know, we will know fullness and completion and uh, the, the fullness of God's kingdom come. So here we are, hanging out in the second half, as uh, sung by St. John of Bon Jovi. <laughs> Forgive me. Okay, that's the history of heaven, part two. Jesus offers a course correction to his disciples. And this part is such a subtle, but I think a crucial um, display of Jesus' character and hence God's character. He says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this, that the Spirit submits to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So Jesus has explained to the disciples what's going on spiritually and how they're able to do these great and powerful deeds. But he also gives them this course correction where he says, yes, you are supposed to go out and trample evil underfoot. 
with all the power and uh, authority and resources that I have given you to do that. But don't be the kind of victor that celebrates how flipping awesome you are. Instead, celebrate what these victories point toward, and that's the fact that you have been reconciled to the victorious God. The fact that you're given power and authority is not something in which to be proud or to boast about as though it meant you were anything special or that you were somehow better than the poor souls that you were ministering to. The whole point of these signs and wonders is that they are signs that point to God and they are wonders that we might marvel in his goodness and in his power. They're an indication not that we are great but that we are in Christ who is great. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, a few weeks ago, I preached on the part where Jesus first sends out his disciples to do the stuff. And I encouraged us to also be people who do the stuff. We watched a clip of uh, John Wimber preaching where he complained that when he first attended church, he was frustrated because he said, when I worked for the devil, the devil let me do his stuff. When I, when I, now I'm working for Jesus, I want to do his stuff. And I encourage us to do that, and I don't want to put a dampener on that call at all. That's my caveat, that we must never stop moving into places where we have faith and dependence on God and ask him and, and expect him to do great works of healing and salvation in our midst. But I do want to emphasize that these works of power are never a thing to rejoice in for their own sake. It's all about what they point towards. As I say again, signs and wonders are there to give us a sign towards God and that we might wonder in his goodness and power. But when we start hungering for his power, we start to, our, our focus starts to drift from where it ought to be and that is on his presence. His power always comes with his presence. But it's his presence that Jesus invites us to hunger for and to seek. So this is a subtle but important course correction that Jesus makes uh, for his disciples. And we need to listen to it again and again because it's so easy to get so caught up in all the things Jesus asks us to do and see our focus drift onto those things when we're working for Jesus, we need to keep our gaze fixed on him. And this is especially true with spiritual warfare. The most powerful act of opposition that anyone can possibly do against Satan is not to face off against him, but to turn our backs to him and instead look upon the face of Jesus. When we keep our gaze fixed on Jesus and we rejoice in him and in the God who loves and saves us, that's how we keep all the forces of evil underfoot. Now, I've done a whole bunch of study in the ways that the Bible teaches uh, about the person and the works of Satan, but I don't believe it would have ever been safe for me to do so unless I didn't also have my home in him. 
because he's the only one who has the strength and power and will to overcome Satan. If I face off against Satan, I'm going to lose. So it's crucial that we don't let our gaze drift onto the works that we are doing to overcome evil in our midst and forget to look upon him who has the power and authority and will to do it. So we need to be really careful. It's true. This is true for everything that we read, everything we listen to, everything we watch or participate in. To any extent, we need to be really careful that our number one priority is worshipping the Lord Jesus and keeping our gaze fixed on him. Filling our eyes and our ears and our minds with things that flow from him. And uh, Paul points this out in Philippians. He says, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Don't rejoice that the Spirit submits to you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Part three. Jesus rejoices. I love this bit because I think it shows us a side of Jesus that we don't often see or perhaps don't always notice. We know that Jesus can be funny, but he's funny in a kind of uh, cutting, satirical way. But he seems quite serious a lot of the time. And I don't think he stopped being serious here, but I get the sense when I read this section that Jesus is actually really enjoying himself now. He's loving seeing the plan yielding results. He's loving the fact that he's no longer doing this own, but he's sending out people and they're coming back absolutely pumped. They're loving it and he's loving it. More and more people are witnessing the kingdom of God coming close. More and more people are accepting the welcome into the abundant life that he is working to restore. He's done his stuff, and now he sent disciples out to do the stuff, and they love it, and he loves it. And I also love the way that the unity of the Trinity is expressed in this section. Jesus rejoices in the Holy Spirit, and he gives thanks to his Father, and he celebrates the way that all three persons of the Godhead are united in bringing salvation to many. And that same Holy Spirit is with us today, and in us today. So we too can rejoice in the Holy Spirit and celebrate, celebrate God's goodness through Jesus. And I also think that it's not an act of hubris or pride that we can rejoice in the part that we ourselves get to play in God's work. Because Jesus is modeling what it looks like to be truly humble here. And according to that model, I can rejoice and thank God for the work he is doing in and through me. Uh, John Wimber again tells a great story of a congregant coming up to a worship leader after a worship set and saying, hey, Matt, <laughs> that was a great worship set. That was absolutely brilliant. And Matt, of course, being absolutely humble, says in, re in response, oh, no, it wasn't me. Nothing good about it was me. It was all God. And the congregant replies, 
If it was all God, it would have been much better. (laughs) I think we need to get better at seeing ourselves as the vessels through which God has chosen to operate in the world and stop being silly when we actually see God working through us. Wimber said that he learned in those moments to receive the encouragement but pass on the glory. The glory is God's alone, but we're supposed to rejoice and be encouraged as we are brought into this activity. And then at the end of this interaction with Jesus and his disciples, Jesus makes a remark that's a continuation of his rejoicing. And once again, it tells us a lot about what Jesus is like. He says, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And this is where I'm coming into land. The blessing of God is in no way restricted to the wise and the powerful, like me. Sorry, I didn't write that bit. <laughs> but sometimes I think that when, when those of us who stand here who have some element of theological training or biblical study, um, it sometimes can feel as though there's this, this hierarchy of wisdom and knowledge that even exists in this room. But that's not true, because if the Christmas story, for example, shows us anything, it's that God bestows blessing not on those who know things or have things, but on those who see things and hear things. And we can all do that. I was having a chat this week with somebody I've known for nearly, nearly 30 years. We had met back in the 90s, in the Dark Ages, last century, and uh, we'd done all sorts of missionary work together as younglings. And uh, as we were chatting just this week, we recognized that, there, that we had, in that time, very much been part of a, a, a culture within Christianity that emphasized what were essentially performative skills of being able to communicate the theology in articulate and compelling ways. But... I don't think that Jesus asks us to do that at all, or at least not all of us. What he asks of all of us is that we bear witness, and you can only bear witness to things you have seen and things you have heard, not just to things that you've been smart enough or eloquent enough to make into a compelling argument. We're invited to tell people of the experiences we ourselves have had of God, the things we have seen God do. If you look at the episode when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman by the well and uh, her testimony results in the salvation of that whole region, what is her testimony? Go and look it up. She says, come and meet the man who told me everything I ever did. She didn't explain anything else about him. She didn't explain the, 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 the notion that he was going to be the Messiah, that he was the long-expected one, that he was born of the son of David in Bethlehem. None of that. 
He didn't say, you've all sinned and you need to receive this God's forgiveness. He didn't say any of that. He just, she just shared her experience of Jesus. And that's what we're asked to do. There was a very popular phrase among Christians during that, during that period of time when we were working together, my friend and I. People would wear it on wristbands and use it as a as a, a, a way to work out what to do at any given time. Do you know what it is? WWJD. Yeah, WWJD, what would Jesus do? I believe a much more important question is this. What is Jesus doing right now? And what does he want to do right now in partnership with those of us who love and trust him? And so if we're to have a testimony of what we have heard and what we have seen of Jesus, we have to be seeking after him and looking for what he's doing and partnering with the Holy Spirit in the ministry that he has given us both power and authority to join in. And that's what we're going to do right now. So why don't you stand if you're able. And I think it's, uh, it's because of this, this uh, point that I've just landed on that I didn't really want to, um, to give you any memorable, punchy, uh, three-point things to remember, but really just to focus on the Holy Spirit and, and invite him to say what he's saying to you. So, Father, we ask that as you have uh, scattered some seed this morning, would you now just point out to us what you are growing in us? We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and speak to everyone here and give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you are doing. I think the, the, the Lord particularly wants to uh, minister to those who, if, if, uh, if, if you ask that question, where have I seen Jesus? Where have I heard and experienced him? And you don't know what the answer to that question is. I think there's a special invitation for you to come and seek his face with those of us who maybe have those stories. And so we can just simply enter into a new chapter of meeting with Jesus and hearing from him. Or maybe it's just been so long that you've experienced God. Perhaps you've been riddled with anxiety about what you are supposed to believe and what you're supposed to think and what you're supposed to do. That you've, your gaze has slipped and you just want to look upon his face again. So we want to par partner with you in prayer. At the same time, you're free to just, as the worship band play, just respond where you are 
to the Lord and to what the Spirit is doing. But as the band begins to play, don't hesitate. If you feel you need to come and uh, be prayed with, And then in, in a moment, Marie will come and uh, reveal other things that the Lord has already been saying to us that may strike a chord with your spirits uh, that you might want to respond to. But yeah, come. Come.